All right. Morning, everyone. So either you know through work or when you're at home or just throughout every just your daily life, a lot of us go through this process of a cost-benefit analysis. You guys know what that is, where we're judging the strengths and weaknesses of something or the benefits and the costs and trying to decide whether or not to do a certain action or go after a certain outcome. I know some of you guys do this kind of thing all the time for work, whether you're trying to determine if a certain financial transaction makes sense or if you're trying to decide if a project investment is worth doing. But we all do this one way or another throughout our lives, whether it's a monetary investment or transaction or in relationships. And we do this without thinking. For like small decisions, we do just little, uh, little pros and cons list. Like, am I really about to go back in for another piece of pumpkin pie? The benefits of that, it's like I get to eat more pumpkin pie, right? But the cost might be however many calories that slice of pie is, maybe a mile or two extra on the treadmill. In relationships, we're constantly making on-the-fly cost-benefit analyses that have major implications, and you've got to be ready for them. Now, if she asks if you want to look at pictures of her baby nephew, there's an easy action to get out of that. You can just not pay attention. <laughs> and the benefit is you're not looking at 50 baby pictures, <laughs> but the cost... She might be a little upset. <laughs> Judging on your reaction, maybe I didn't do a good enough cost-benefit analysis of that illustration. <laughs> but no matter what the big decisions in our lives are, if it's a career change or starting a family or adding to a family or buying a home that has major renovations and you have to shower at the gym, all these kind of things, it takes a long time to analyze and figure out if it's a worthy uh, thing to do. And if we don't have the correct data, that can impact our decision as well. If we are underestimating what the costs are, or if we are overestimating what the intended benefits might be, we're going to make a decision that might have severe consequences. And the original readers of this letter, the Hebrew Christians, they were going through a big cost-benefit analysis. In fact, this, one of the main themes of this letter was a long heat check of their souls to see if they were believing the gospel, if they were holding fast to Jesus, if they were accepting all the benefits that come with him and that they were not fading away from their faith. The benefits and costs of following Jesus are also made particularly clear in our passage today that Matt read. Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 10. And these Hebrew Christians, they were again faced with a dilemma. Were they going to accept the benefits that came with having Christ and also incur the costs that come with that as well. And that question is also one that we all have to face at some point in our lives. And my prayer for us this morning, as we go through this passage, is that you would have a perfect and clear picture of what exactly the benefits of having Jesus are, as well as the steep cost, because there are some. And that as we're going through, that you guys would be doing this cost-benefit analysis in your minds, and that at the end of the day, you would come to the conclusion that if I get Jesus, if the benefit is that I get Jesus, then it doesn't matter what the cost is, I'm taking Jesus. That's what we're going for this morning. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get into the text.
Heavenly Father, you are so good to us and you gave us the gift of your only son. And he was, lived an obedient life and lived that obedient life even up to death on the cross and he died for our sins. And that sacrificial death on the cross is available to all of us if we would accept it and all of the benefits that come with it. So, Father, I pray and Spirit, would you work through these humble words this morning to press that truth on our hearts that we would see the amazing, glorious benefits of life with Jesus and that it would, that it would pale every other possible thing in comparison. So I pray you do that work in our hearts this morning. I pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to go through this text, and our author divides up this passage into two sections. Uh, First, he's going to give us the benefits. What are the benefits of following Jesus? And then he's going to get into the costs. Uh, But first, we'll start with the benefits. If you, great, yeah, verse 10 there. So these new Christians, these Christians in the first century, they were struggling now with how to live now that Christ had come, now that the Messiah had come. They were devoting themselves to the scriptures and to the apostles' teachings and to prayer. And they were seeking to live for the Lord in everything that they did. And that included leaving behind some of the older covenant practices, some of the older covenant sacrifices and Jewish religious practices. And we can infer then from our passage, and many commentators suggest, that one of the major criticisms that these Hebrew Christians faced was the criticism that they were incorrectly avoiding and putting away with these Jewish feasts and Jewish offerings and sacrifices and doing away with the Jewish altars, as was prescribed in the Older Covenant, in the Old Testament. And in a sense, this criticism was correct. Uh, It is not that these old sacrifices were unimportant or that they weren't good things. These sacrifices were vital to the forgiveness and atonement of sins for the people of Israel. God himself instituted these sacrifices for a reason. They were needed and they were effectual in, what, uh, in their desired and intended outcomes. But as we've seen time and time again throughout this letter, and one of the main arguments in it is that Jesus is better. He's better than all of the older stuff. He's come and he's replaced the old covenant with the new covenant. These older sacrifices were needed for a time, but even from the very beginning, every one of those sacrifices was only just a shadow of the sacrifice that was to come. A permanent sacrifice that Jesus was going to make himself on the cross. One that would atone for the sins of God's people perfectly and completely forever. And this, that sacrifice of Jesus, that's the one that the Hebrew Christians understood, and so they rightly did away with the older covenant Jewish sacrificial system. Not because it was bad, but because something better had come. A new covenant marked by the blood of Christ. The old had been replaced with the new. You know, the old, that iPhone X, that's a good iPhone. There's nothing wrong with it. But have you guys seen that iPhone X, S, Max, R, whatever the name of it? I can't even keep track. That thing looks amazing. It's been replaced. But the Jewish people living at the time, at this time, did not yet understand. They did not have eyes to see or ears to hear, or softened hearts to believe that the Messiah had actually come. So they were holding on to the old things, the old way of doing things. And we can imagine what their attack against the Hebrew Christians might have been. They were telling them, what are you guys doing? You guys don't even have an altar. You guys aren't participating in the Jewish feasts 
You guys aren't eating spiritual blessing. You guys aren't making sacrifices to atone for your sins. How do you guys have forgiveness? How do you guys have atonement? And it's to that criticism that the writer of this letter responds in verse 10. Emphatically, he says, no, we do have an altar. And not only do we have an altar, but we have a new and better altar. It's the altar XS Max. You guys are still running altar 7. And this altar is better because of its very nature, because of the features that were involved in it, if I can continue the iPhone analogy. You know, what kind of altar do we have? The, the implication or the, um, the attack was correct. They don't have a physical altar that they go to anymore, but the new, these Hebrew Christians had a completely different altar. They weren't going to the temple. They weren't renting out the temple on Sunday mornings to use the altar anymore. They had something that was completely different. And so to understand that, we have to understand that when the author is using the word altar here, He's using it as a placeholder for a larger theological concept, a larger uh, idea in mind. And we do this all the time ourselves when we say that Boston won the World Series. We say Boston won the World Series. Did the city of Boston itself win the World Series? Were they on the mound that struck out Machado, swinging down to one knee to get the last out in the final game? No, it wasn't the city itself, but when we say Boston won the World Series, we mean that the Boston Professional Baseball Club, the Red Sox, that team specifically, they won the World Series. And so when our author, our author says, we have an altar, when we say that, when we read that, we have to think, we have the sacrificial, uh, atoning death of Christ on the cross. That is the altar that we have. We have the sacrifice of Jesus, his blood on the cross that atones and forgives us for our sins. It's that altar, it's that cross, it's the one that made the famous uh, hymnist Isaac Watts write this hymn about the cross. And he says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? It was that cross and that blood, that sacrifice, that love of God for his people, for us, that was the better altar that these Hebrew Christians had. And this altar is better. And our passage goes on to show how not only is it better, but it is incompatible with the old. If we're going to put our stake in the ground, if we're going to identify ourselves with Jesus, if we're going to be a Christ follower, we have to leave the older covenant things behind. If we're going to take all the benefits that we have in Christ, we can't continue on with the older things. So look back at verse 10. It says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Those who serve the tent. That's another way of saying those who are still continuing in the old sacrificial Jewish ritualistic uh, system. Tent, or sometimes it's uh, the word tabernacle, those can be used interchangeably, also can be referenced to as the temple. All three of those had served a similar function 
in the Jewish religious world. This is where sacrifices were made. This is where the altar of God was. This is where God met with the people of Israel. And again, it was not a bad thing to serve the tent, to serve the tabernacle. That was a good thing. That was a high calling. It was a calling that was only made to one of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi. And that's where we get the Levitical priesthood from. The priests who would offer these sacrifices on behalf of the people for the forgiveness of their sins. But so this new altar was, but it was incompatible with the old because the sacrifice made on this new altar was different completely and supersedes that of any Old Testament sacrifice. So look at me with, at verses 11. And our author goes into that and explains just how this new sacrifice is better. He says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought outside the camp, sorry, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, those bodies are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. There were several different kinds of older covenant sacrifices, and in the case of many of these, the priests actually got to eat from the sacrifice, eat of the food. But there was one sacrifice that they were not allowed to eat from, and that was the sacrifice offered on the Day of Atonement. The day once a year when the high priest offered a sacrifice for the sins of all of the people. That sacrifice could not be eaten. Instead, those bodies were taken outside of the camp of Israel and burned there. In verses 11 and 12, they make the point then that it was this sacrifice, that's the one that Jesus, that Christ's sacrifice on the cross corresponds to. And that's the one that Jesus' sacrifice is better than and the one that uh, he is doing away with. So he makes the comparison. Just like the bodies of those animals for the sin offering were taken outside the camp, so Jesus also suffered outside of the gate. But here is the difference, though. The older covenant people, the older covenant priests, they could not eat of that older covenant sacrifice. But we are in the new covenant. The new covenant people, these Hebrew Christians, they were able to partake and eat of the sacrifice of Jesus. They were able to partake of the benefits of this new altar, the forgiveness of sins, the, the covering up of our nakedness and our shame, the, the hope that surpasses all of our fears. But those who still serve the tent, those who still serve the old way of doing things, they're not able to partake of this because the new has replaced the old. There is no need for the old anymore. The new has come. And here's another amazing difference track where watch where the blood goes i know that's a weird thing to say but where has the blood where does the blood go in each of these sacrifices where is the blood in each of these two the older covenant the blood was sprinkled on the altar and then the bodies taken outside of the camp they were brought into it says the holy places holy means sanctified or set apart so the sanctified places the place where God dwelt. You couldn't just waltz into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the holy places in the temple. Nicholas Cage couldn't even national treasure his way into the holy places of the temple. It was separated, stood apart from the rest. It was holy. That's where the blood went to atone for the sins of the people in the altar. The bodies discarded, 
outside of the camp. But where did Jesus shed his blood? Where was that sacrifice and altar made? It was made outside of the camp. Outside the camp is not holy. Outside of the camp is where things are unsanctified, where things are dirty and filthy. And that's where Jesus went. (laughs) That's where we are. Jesus went outside the camp, outside the gate, to the filth and dirt where the people needed that salvation. And what does the text say? It says that he sanctified his people there through his own blood. Jesus has already done the work. He has accomplished what these older covenant sacrifices were intending to do. He atoned for the sins of his people once and for all, and now we have no more need for priests, no more need for sacrifices. He's already accomplished and done the work. And just as an aside, this is the reason why we don't refer to any of our pastors here at our Seven Mile Road churches as priests. We don't do that, unlike some other churches and like the Catholic Church does. Because we have this passage here which tells us that we no longer have any need for a priest. We no longer need priests to offer sacrifices on our behalf because we have a capital P priest who's already accomplished that work, who's already done and made that sacrifice for us that is permanent once and for all. And this is the grave error of the Catholic Church that they still affirm and proclaim the need for continual sacrifice through the Catholic Mass that the priests bless. But our passage condemns that practice, and it also condemns any practice, anything, any foreign substance that we try to add on to the sacrifice of Christ that's already been done for us, whatever that might be. And there's many of them that we try to add to the gospel, but this passage condemns it. In every single way, Jesus is better. His sacrifice was better. The Hebrew Christians understood this and they were confident and assured enough to draw a line in the sand, to put their stake in the ground and say, I'm with this guy, that I'm with Jesus because they understood the benefits. And it's just, it's gospel 101 that Jesus died for our sins on the cross and in him we have all his benefits, forgiveness of sins, we have atonement. That word atonement literally means a a covering up or covering up of our nakedness and our shame. We have a removal of guilt and we have an eternal hope that can surpass all of the fears that we have. And it's some really, really good news that we have an altar, that we have an altar, that we have these benefits. So who in their right mind wouldn't want to have these benefits? And I wish this was just the end of the sermon and end of the text, that we just have these amazing benefits that we we can have. But unfortunately, the truth is, but there are some costs that come along with it. As you might have noticed, there's some empty seats in the building this morning. And there's a lot of empty churches all around this city, a lot of empty churches all around this country. People aren't leaving their cities to come and enjoy the benefits that they have available to them in the gospel. And it's not because that the gospel isn't good news, it's really good news. And it's not because that what we're preaching to you today is not true. This is the truest thing in the world. But the reality is that they are, there are a lot of costs that go along with the benefits that come with the cross. That's, what the, that's why the Hebrew Christians in this passage are facing adversity. That's why we face adversity in our lives as well, is that there is a cost 
to having Jesus. It's clear from this passage that the author does not expect his readers to be popular by standing with Jesus and planting their flag in his camp. And so he goes then to verses 13 and 14 and he makes his thesis statement, if you will. This is the argument that he's been building up to. So verses 10 through 12 are the foundational arguments. Then he comes back in verse 13 and gives his thesis statement. He says, Therefore, let us go to him. Let us go to him. Okay, it doesn't sound too bad. Not much cost there. Let us go to him outside the camp. Okay, I've got to travel a little bit. Now there's a little bit more cost, but maybe you know, I can take some time outside the camp. That doesn't sound too bad. Bearing the reproach that he endured. All right, so that sounds less fun now. Now it sounds like there's some real costs to following Jesus. If we're going to have the benefits of Jesus, that means we are going to have to bear his reproach. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he taught the truth of God. He taught repentance. He taught that he was, not the, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that if you wanted that, you had to follow him, bear your cross, and follow him. And he was despised and rejected for that message. He was despised by the religious leaders of his day, rejected and put to death outside the city gates. And if that happened to our own Lord and Savior, how can we think or hope that the same wouldn't happen to us? But we still struggle with this decision. It's, you know, it's comfortable to live inside the city. It's comfortable to be inside the camp, is it not? We've built very comfortable lives for ourselves. We have successful careers. We have the respect of our coworkers and our neighbors. We're enlightened Bostonians. And we don't have any need or for any talk about altars or old religious practices or anything like that. We've modernized our altars. We've built our institutions. And that's, those serve our needs much better than anything we could find in the Bible. But make no mistake about it. You can't approach the cross of Christ by staying within the safe confines of your city. Because the cross simply isn't there. But if you go outside the gates of worldly acceptance, you will gain the salvation that he bought with his own blood that makes you holy. These Hebrew Christians knew the cost of following Jesus. It meant the scorn and rejection from their culture, and it meant the ridicule and being cast out from their society. It meant persecution. And Christians have been persecuted for the faith throughout history, and it continues to this day. Last year, I was reading that an estimated 3,000 Christians were killed because of their professed faith in Christ. That is an ultimate cost, is it not? And how incredibly blessed are we that really the only social, like the only social thing we have to lose, the only uh, cost that we suffer in our society is the scorn of our coworkers or an eye roll or two from our neighbors or people we know. And yet sometimes even that cost alone is too great for us. It can be hard to take the cost of discipleship seriously, but it is increasingly becoming less socially acceptable to be a Christian in our culture. And I'm okay with that. Because I think it's going to have to force us to understand that this truth even more, that we can't have the benefits of having Christ without also incurring some kind of costs. Jesus himself warned us about this. In the Gospel of John, he says, If the world hates you, 
Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but rather I chose you out of the world, the world therefore hates you. And Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, puts it even more bluntly. And he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But how gracious is God to meet us with persecution, no matter how big or how small, to remind us that we actually don't belong here. We don't belong in this city. Look back at verse 14. It says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is another common theme throughout the letter of Hebrews that you might have picked up on. We saw most prominently in the story of Abraham, who was willing to trust in the providence of God and live as a foreigner in the earthly city that was promised to him because he was looking forward to a heavenly city that was his actual inheritance that was coming. So Seven Mile Road, we have no lasting city here. We have no salvation in this city, in the city of Melrose, in the city of Boston, in the cities that we build up for ourselves. But we do have salvation if we're willing to go outside of the city, outside of the gate to where Jesus is. So I don't know exactly what your city is right now. I don't know what the spaces that you are holding on to or the place that you are unwilling to leave in order to have all of the benefits of Christ. Some of us, many of us sitting here are unwilling to part with our money. We are unable to give generously because we aren't willing to follow Jesus into his poverty. Some of us are holding on to grudges and hatred towards family members and loved ones and we aren't able to get rid of that. That's holding us back from having the benefits of Jesus because we're unwilling to offer forgiveness and also unwilling to let our pride take a hit. And some of us, and I'm preaching to myself, are so in love with this world and so in love with the sins and are so entangled up in it that we're unable to accept the benefits of Christ because we would lose those things that we desire so much. So if that describes any of you, I would offer just this suggestion that maybe you're underestimating what the benefits of Jesus really are. That maybe you do not yet have a glorious enough vision of who Jesus is and all that the cross offers to you. So are you fearful this morning? Well, there is hope on the cross that cancels out every fear. Are you ashamed, deep down ashamed of who you are or what you've done? Well, the righteousness of Jesus on the cross is like a warm wool blanket that you can just snuggle up in that covers you completely, keeps you warm on these cold New England mornings when you're still too cheap to turn the heat on. Do you have a deep weight of guilt that's just hanging on your shoulders and you're weary from carrying it for so many years? I'm telling you, to carry that outside the gate and carry that to the cross and leave it there forever because Jesus has died for that. 
Let's go to Jesus. With Jesus, we have that, those benefits. We have that security. We have that family. We have that freedom. We have all of those things. So, where are you at with your analysis this morning? Have you weighed the benefits against the costs? And have you made a decision? Unfortunately, as much as we wish to at times, this isn't a decision that we can ignore forever. Because this city that is coming, it is a real city. And it is really, really is coming. And inaction itself, not acting, staying where you are, that is a decision that you can make too. But if you stay in the city, you have no right to eat from this altar. But if you leave your city, if you go outside the gate to where Jesus is, you have forgiveness of sins. You have freedom from guilt and shame. You have adoption into a loving family that you've been lacking. Yes, the costs are going to be steep, but the benefit is not even worth comparing. The costs are just going to be a drop in the ocean of the benefits that we have in Jesus. So if you haven't made a decision yet, I don't want you to put it off any longer. I want you to come, leave your city, run to where Jesus is, come to his altar. And for those of us who have made that decision, who have put their lot in with Christ, who are enjoying the benefits that this new altar brings and that we are seeking the city that is to come, I'll just leave us with this uh, last application from the next verse, verse 15. I won't have it on the screen. I'll just read it to you if you have it in your Bibles. But verse 15, and it says, Through him, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. We no longer have a need for a sin offering or sacrifices of atonement, but the only sacrifice we have left to give is a sacrifice of praise to God. So we're going to be singing in a few moments. And so I want you guys to be singing loud this morning. I want us to sing like a people who have been made holy by Jesus' own blood and have left everything behind and ran to him where he is, knowing that the benefit of having Jesus outweighs every single cost. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are in awe of your altar. The altar that we have, the cross of Christ, where your blood dripped down. Lord Jesus, you paid that ultimate cost for us. You've offered us and given us all these benefits. Father, help us to believe that in our hearts this morning. There's some of us here who have not yet grabbed hold of the benefits that you've offered them. I pray that they would do that this morning. And I pray that all of us would take a look at our lives and ask ourselves and, and take a heat check and see if we truly are putting our lot in with you, if we are running outside of the, outside of the gate, outside of the camp to where you are, because that's the only place that has life, Lord Jesus. I pray for that spirit. Make it true in our hearts and our minds this morning, I pray. Amen.